I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign. Did you know that the recommended weekly limit of 14 units of alcohol equates to five pints of beer at average strength, or one and a half bottles of wine, or 14 single measures of spirits. If you didn't know that, well, you're not alone, actually. The majority of people who choose to drink alcohol do not know how many units are contained in the most common drinks. Informed consumers, though, make more responsible choices, and so the Made to be Measured campaign is supporting people across Scotland to understand more about the units in their glass. Made in Scotland and enjoyed around the world, Scotch whisky should always be enjoyed responsibly. Find out more by visiting scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured. The question shook the United Kingdom to the core, and for those who feared the breakup of the country, the referendum results tonight bring relief. Scotland has voted to keep the kingdom united. Hello and welcome to Holyrood Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald. We're recording on Wednesday, the 20th of September. Thanks very much for being here this week. Uh, You may have already noticed a couple of bonus episodes have dropped into your feed this week. That is because it is nine years since the independence referendum. And so this week we thought we'd take some time to consider what happened then and where we're at now. So already you can listen to Blair Jenkins, who was chief executive of Yes Scotland, the Yes Scotland campaign. That's in your feed. Also in your feed, Blair McDougall, who was chief executive of the Better Together campaign. And here we are rallying the troops for a big conversation today. Uh, As usual, we've got Jeff Aberdeen, who was Alex Salmon's Chief of Staff when he was First Minister. Hello, Jeff. Good morning. And also here, Andy McKeever, who was Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Hello, Andy. Good morning. Uh, Great to have you both here and very pleased to welcome a couple of guests actually to the podcast as part of our conversation today. Uh, We've got Joanne Lamont, uh, who was the leader of the Scottish Labour Party from 2011 to 2014. Joanne, hello. Good morning. 
Great to have you here, Joanne. Thank you very much for taking the time. And alongside Joanne, we've got the former chief strategist of the Yes campaign and senior policy advisor to the First Minister as well, Stephen Noon. Hello, Stephen. Hello there. Gosh, what an assembled cast of dignitaries we have on the podcast this week. Thank <laughs> thank you. Thank you all for being here. An assembled cast of dignitaries plus me. Good. <laughs> don't we call don't them all yourself things, down. But... <laughs> uh, I want to start, actually, uh, let me start with you, Jeff, on, on, uh, on where we're at today as we assemble for our conversation, because I think it's interesting to consider what we've, le- what we've heard from Blair Jenkins and Blair McDougall on Hollywood Sources in the last couple of days. Um, first of all, from Blair Jenkins, who said that, yes, Scotland won the campaign in 2014, but lost the referendum. It's got a bit of attention online. Uh, what do you make of what he had to say? Well, in a binary competition or uh, uh, referendum, there is only one winner, and the winner was better together. Uh, but let, let's establish that. However, in fairness to Blair, what I think he was perhaps getting at, and certainly my reflection on the result was, um, well, two things. Firstly, at the throughout the referendum campaign, um, better together, we're, we're, we're coalescing around that there was no need for further powers for Scotland. Um, now, once polls narrowed towards the end, we obviously had the, the infamous vow, which uh, was to give the Scottish Parliament more powers. So in that sense, I think uh, that, you know, the yes kind of stole the initiative. Secondly, the principal um, protagonists of the yes campaign was the SNP. And the SNP following uh, defeat in the referendum went on to win 56 out of 59 seats in the general election. So they were hardly humbled too much by that or, or obstructed too much by that defeat and went on to uh, basically change the, the electoral map um, in Scotland and Westminster terms. So in that sense, the SNP probably stole the initiatives and the principal protagonists, and it'll be interesting to hear Joanne's views on this, uh, the Labour Party from the, the Better Together campaign, uh, uh, went into somewhat of a demise at that point. So I, I understand where Blair's coming from, but let's let's be clear: we're not independent, so we lost. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, just before we bring in our guests, Andy, a, a reflection from you on that. I thought it was quite an interesting message from from Blair nine years on. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I also take a pretty binary view that it's a referendum, right? So the winner wins and the loser loses, and just that's just the way it is. I think that um, we are coming, I think, to the end of this post, this initial post-referendum period. And what I mean by that is that I think we're now entering the first few elections where you can actually credibly say that independence is not going to be that big an issue for much longer. Um, I mean, I kind of reflect on the Tory strategy and the SNP strategy when I say that, because both of those parties have been totally dependent on the referendum since it happened. So just as much as the SNP have wanted to talk about IndyRef2, so have the Tories. Both of those parties are totally dependent on IndyRef2 being seen to be on the table because it's the way that they drive their core vote out. And you've started to see how the Tories have slipped in that. They've lost 8 9% to Labour because people don't buy the message anymore that IndyRef2 is a live issue. Um, and I think that is also starting to happen to the SNP. If you look at Hamza's current policy of 
you know, winning the Westminster election and will immediately start negotiations for independence. I think I think that's an eye roll moment for quite a lot of people. The concept that you could go from forty eight seats to let me do my maths, twenty five in mm. theory would still win you that election. The concept of going from sorry, not twenty five, thirty five. The concept of going from forty eight to thirty five and then saying, look how well we've done, it's time to negotiate independence, is not credible. Nobody, nobody's going to think that's credible. And and the, the, similarly, the Tories saying, you know, this is a, you've got to vote for us to stop India F2. People are going to say, sorry, am I looking at the 2019 campaign? What are you talking about? Um, and, and I think that those two parties with those, look, India F2 is just around the corner messages, which is effectively is what their message is is beginning to lack credibility in a way that it maybe didn't before. So I suppose my reflection is that we are coming to the beginning of the end, I think, of that um, uh, fraught and frantic and uh, pretty unhelpful post-referendum period. The scene is set, right? Let's bring in Joanne Lament. Joanne, um, I mean, you might want to pick up on some of what Jeff and Andy have said, but I I think also to... Put to you to consider to take you back to the referendum campaign, and I suppose just as a broad question, your own your own thoughts on it nine years on, um, and your role in it, and whether you enjoyed it, and whether it was good fun or really a bit of a slog. It was horrendous. It was utterly horrendous, and I and I say that in all seriousness. People, serious people on both sides who wanted to prosecute an argument around the Constitution, but actually living it and experiencing it, it was divisive. Families were divided. There was a level of anger. I mean, I might have been closer to what it was like out on the streets and on the doors, but I was coming across people who were were really angry at me and had been empowered to chant scum at me as I was going to meetings. We were having meetings which were ostensibly hustings and debates, where basically the notion was developed that it was entirely legitimate just to shout people down. And that's not to say that there weren't serious people on both sides, but as an experience, I think Alex Salmon called it civic and joyous. I can't think of anything that was further away from that. Um, and the notion that, uh, I think as Blair Jenkins, you said, that, well, we won the argument, but we lost the vote, it's like there's something of the teenager about that. Well, I was absolutely right. I just couldn't persuade you, but I'm not going to change my own views. Um, so at, at the same time, my anger and frustration with all of this, I think it was entirely right that we had the referendum. I think it was entirely right, that, and I still think it's right, if people believe that they should be an independent Scotland, they should prosecute that case. But Scotland has paid a very heavy price. For the last nine years, it has been an easy place for politicians to go Rather than to have a serious conversation about what do we need to do about the economy, what do we need to do about social service, what do we need to do about what's happening in our schools, that it, it, we can default to, well, what is our position on, on, a, on a divide? Actually, I don't think the country felt. I think politicians um, stuck to the divides when other people were saying, well, on balance, I might think that, I might think this. And the price now, I think there's now a time, at this time, we need a degree of seriousness coming out of COVID. I genuinely thought that people would say, right, OK, this is our positions on the Constitution, but see, for now, if we have any power and influence, if we have any resources, we will direct them towards those that we saw. What did we learn out of COVID? That actually those who are most vulnerable, with the least money, who already suffered inequality, 
experienced it even more. And if we're not spending all our time, energy, talent and resources across political parties thinking about what do we need to do for children who weren't educated for a couple of years, for people who are isolated in their own homes and vulnerable, and what do we do to build up public services? Now, forgive me, I'm happy to engage in whether I think Scotland should be in the United Kingdom or not, but the idea that any of us have got the... Um, I regard it as a, um, an indulgence, frankly, for, for all of us to be thinking only about the constitutional arguments when there's so much that needs to be done and which could be done across party. Mm. It's interesting what you say about uh, sort of doing stuff cross party as well. That's something we'll come back to. And it's, you know, thank you for such candid reflections so far, Joanne. Um, Andy, what do, you, what do you make of that? Scotland paying a heavy price? Yeah, I'm really concerned about that because um, ideology gets a bad name sometimes in politics, but I think ideology in politics is really important. I think it's really important to have an ideological debate which is based on different parties having different <clears throat> philosophies about how you run things. Um, that happens all over Europe to perfectly good effect. You know, we always talk about how uh, how we should hold up the Scandinavian countries as examples of best practice and all that sort of stuff. All the Scandinavian countries have got a large party of the centre-right and a large party of the centre-left, and they have an ideological debate about how to run the country. And sometimes one side wins and sometimes the other side wins, and that's the right way to do it. We have had a constitutional debate for at least 12 years now, arguably a little bit longer than that, but for at least 12 years. And it means that we don't argue about ideology anymore. So we have, for instance, a, a, a pretty severe taxation policy at the moment in this country. Um, and it has only been in the literally in the last few weeks that anybody has actually said anything serious in terms of offering an alternative to high taxes. Um, we uh, have had no debate whatsoever about how to run the NHS or how to run schools. There is no discussion about these big ideological issues. And the reason there isn't is because the primary parties are too scared to talk about that in case they lose votes for their yes or no campaigns. So they don't talk about any reform of public services. They tend not to talk about tax especially tax cuts, if they can avoid it because they're worried about losing votes. Um, they, there, is, there is no ideological debate. In Scotland, we shouldn't kid ourselves, Scotland is unique in this. We are the only country in Europe, certainly that I can think of, where we obsess about a constitutional debate and we don't have an ideological debate. And that is the very direct reason why so much of our public services uh, and what we try to deliver for citizens is going so badly wrong at the moment is that we actually don't talk about them. I mean, I agree that um, the, the, the debate around the size of the state, how you tax on, has been crowded out. But that's just something more than that, which is that you only do things if they're going to advance your political position on the Constitution. Because I think it's entirely legitimate for people who believe in independence or whatever to argue that and to say, well, that would be better. But if the price you pay is that you never have the other debate and conversation, that's a huge price to pay. And indeed, as Kenny McCaskill, I think, at one point said, that he believed that things that the SNP should have done around justice issues and actively chose not to do them because it would affect the coalition they were constructing around the Constitution. And that is, that is a massive problem. And I would be somebody who... My frustration, and forgive me for sounding so negative about what I'm sure other people felt was 
a, a fascinating thing during the referendum. But my frustration always was that what, what I believe politically, what shaped me as a young person was looking at the divides within Scotland between rural islands, um, Scotland's my family came from, urban, division within cities, the nature of inequality, the nature of poverty, the experience of, 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 of um, ethnic minorities, of women and so on, that these things matter in and of themselves and there are things that you can do. But the constitutional argument just crowded all of that out when you say, and you do things because they build that coalition rather than challenging it. And actually most politics should be about challenging people's attitudes and and you know having the arguments. If you've got to keep people on side um, round the constitution on either side of the argument, you don't have a really serious conversation about, for example, post-COVID, how do we rebuild our services and how do we particularly direct resources towards young people who have been excluded because they've not, they've not engaged in education for the last couple of years. So I think the opportunity costs are massive from this. The, the opportunity costs, the, all the talent and ability across the whole of Scotland, which is funneled into an argument about the Constitution, which could actually be used to challenge something. You know, really, I mean, I'm an instinctively somebody who, who's in favour of persuading people that taxation is a good thing, but I recognise you have to win the argument. But if we're not even having the argument, if we're not directing our resources and talents, what could we be doing to make the health service more effective? What could we be doing in, to keep our streets safe and so on? We're not really having... We have a very superficial arguments about these things because there is this fear of losing the coalition around the constitutional debate. And I just think this is a time really for... you know, Yes, it, it's not said, as I keep repeating, these are important things and people have entirely right to prosecute an, an argument for... Scotland um, being independent, but the opportunity costs just now, I think, have been massive. And I think um, Andy's right when he says that it's been an interest actually for all of the parties in continuing this argument, you could see, because some of the actual political arguments around the big feet questions we face are so difficult. And, um, you know, who wants to have a fight and argument with people in a time of a cost of living crisis about what taxation should be? Holyrood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to be Measured campaign. Uh, right, let's bring Stephen in. Uh, Stephen, but, you know, you're hearing what Joanne's saying, what Jeff's saying, what and, uh, Andy's saying as well. What are your own considerations nine years on? What was the campaign like for you? I suppose one of my regrets is that people like jo- Joanne experienced the referendum the way they did. Um, from where I was sitting and the people around me, I mean, it was a time of great empowerment. It was a time of people having, perhaps for the first time, conversations about the sort of Scotland they wanted, people who hadn't participated in politics before, uh, feeling able uh, this time to vote, you know, huge turnout. Uh, but also, you know, sitting on the train and having people around me, strangers talking about politics, talking about Scotland's future, uh, my view is that Scotland will move to independence uh, when we do so with a degree of hope and a degree of joy. Um, I think the process of moving to independence has to be in some way a unifying one. And so I suppose my regret from nine years ago is that we failed to do that. And, you know, I was thinking about this. What, what, what strategic decisions did we take back then? And one of the ones we took fairly early on was that we, we would 
not engage with those people who are regarded as being unpersuadable. So the campaign would put its effort into those who were, we, we had this one to 10 scale, if you remember. So people who were uh, on the scale at a point where we could move them up towards independent support. And so the campaign made a conscious choice, I suppose, not to engage with the unpersuadable. And I think what happened was that we then ended up with two very different campaigns. We had one half of the country engaged in one particular conversation and the other half of the country engaged in a different one. Um, and so I suppose if, if I was going to do things differently uh, this time, I think it'd be very important for the Yes campaign to actually converse and engage with those who are uh, not just persuadable, but also those who are unpersuadable. Uh, so having conversations with people who will never vote yes uh, to, to understand their fears and their concerns in a way that we probably didn't last time. Um, I would also say, I mean, I remember the, in the referendum, and, and Jeff might remember this too, I mean, walking through George Square in the days before the, the actual vote and people were literally dancing in the streets uh, and there was music and there was, there was all this sort of sense of possibility and excitement. Um, and that clearly wasn't, wasn't replicated elsewhere. There were people elsewhere who were not dancing in the streets but you know, trembling in their boots uh, frightened of the consequences. And so as a yes campaign, I think we failed to take into account those feelings, those concerns. And I think if we were going to do it again, we would, we would have to do it differently. I accept that there are different perspectives, but I can assure you I walked through George Square and it was a deeply unpleasant experience. And that's not to say that most of the people who were singing, dancing had any animus towards me, but there were people who saw me not just as unpersuadable, and I mean I as, an, as a kind of a reflection of somebody who would be seen as politically having taken a position in this, not just unpersuadable, but somebody who was beyond being persuaded and shouldn't have to be persuaded because I was I was anti-Scotland. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm a tough old cookie. I'm a tough old cookie. I've argued, I've argued politically for a long time. But the thing is that you, if you say to people that not only does this person disagree with you, but what they are saying is beyond the pale, and they despise your country and they despise you. There is no coming back from that. It's very, very difficult. And I, I, that's, I found what was interesting. Um, just to say that there were people, I mean, for example, Alec Bell, and you might not thank me for saying this, the argument I found hardest to deal with in one head was the idea that Scotland could do better in the sense that Westminster was a failed state, it's so slow to move, that you could be fleet of foot, a small nation could be fleet of foot respond to modern times. I found that the most difficult argument because it was on the, it's in the place where I am and what I'm interested in politically. But being told, you, you're, um, you're talking Scotland down, you regard Scotland as a, a basket case, all the things were simply not true. And I don't ascribe that to any particular person. But please don't... Uh, um, disregard the fact that the singing and dancing that some people experienced, and I agree with you that there were people who were engaged in a political debate, but they were engaged in a political debate about um, something in the future rather than say, well, actually, we can still have this discussion about whether how do we make our, the opportunities for our children greater within the context of any constitutional debate. You're not debarred from having a discussion about child poverty because you're in favour of staying in the United Kingdom. That was my frustration. The alliance wasn't with the people who wanted to tackle poverty. It was a, it was a disruption 
of that progressive alliance, in my view, round actually saying these things matter and how do we seriously um, address them? So I think this is, you know, the, the, the lessons of 2014. I think one of the lessons of 2014 is that uh, we need to have this conversation in a less binary way. So again, I remember in the run-up to the referendum, uh, working as a special advisor at the time, and a lot of my time was spent trying to uh, help build a, a, a third case, a, a sort of a more powers case. So we would we'd have a referendum potentially, which was multi-option. So we would have no change. We would have more powers. We would have independence. And you know, while arguing for independence, we were also trying to encourage those who were looking for more powers to to enter the the conversation in a, a particular way. And one of the decisions of the UK government. Uh, was that the referendum could not be a multi-option referendum. It couldn't have that more nuanced uh, element to it. It had to be the binary. And I think moving forward, the lesson is that binaries produce the situation exactly that you're talking about, Joanne. Uh, And for us to deal with the constitutional question in a more constructive way, we have to, first of all, start from what unites us. And I think there is a large body of people in Scotland at the moment who do want to have more powers, more independence, however you want to describe it. But there's not yet a, a majority or a clear majority for full independence. So I think there's a, there's a, a journey that we can go together. We can, we can walk a certain path together. And if we, start from, if we start from that point of what unites us and what we agree on rather than what separates us, I think we can have this constitutional debate in a, a more unifying way, but also in a way which focuses on policy. So we can have a conversation about poverty and say, OK, well, what are the levers we actually need right now in Scotland? But also what are the relationships with the rest of the UK that we need right now? So the debate becomes about what degree of more powers and what degree of ongoing relationship we have in order to deal with policy proposition A, poverty, policy proposition B, housing, energy, whatever they might be. Um, and it's, you know, this is not an easy transition to make. So we've spent the last nine years in these tribes, yes, no tribes. But I think moving forward that we do have to find a way of breaking down uh, the binary uh, and moving to a position where we see ourselves as being as having things in common, uh, as I think we do. I would say that not everybody stays in tribes, actually. I think that in, when, when politics moves on, I'm for, a second, for example, I'm very involved in women's politics and women's rights, and I've, re- I've found a renewed energy in working with women across the political divide because sometimes it becomes clear that in the big policy issues, this is not just a matter for individual political parties. So I think that's right. And, and actually, that a realisation that some of these big policy issues are things that people are wrestling with right across all of the United Kingdom. It's not something that it's only a matter for Scotland, but they're actually... You know, there are women across the whole of the United Scotland exercised about what has happened to women just now. And you might argue even you know, beyond, beyond that. So I think Andy's right in terms of where we are at the moment. So, you know, I came back from Canada after being away for, for a, a good period of time. And there was a sense almost that the, if you, you know, when you take a, a deep breath and then you begin to speak and by the time your breath begins to run out your, your voice is all squeaky and slightly difficult to understand and it was also at the stage in the constitutional debate where we were running out of breath and so things were a wee bit squeaky and uh, you know we, we could the, the, the communication wasn't wasn't being done very well so I think it's time for us to stop there's a full stop given by the Supreme Court take a deep breath and decide okay what is this new phase of the constitutional conversation 
uh, going to look like. So the time of the referendum is over. I think we're now in the time where the energy is behind a UK Labour government. Uh, and that UK Labour government is potentially going to do interesting things to the, the centralised constitution of the UK, reforms at the centre. Uh, there's interesting things happening in Wales, interesting things happening in Northern Ireland. There's a potential for a good conversation to be had in Scotland about what the next constitutional steps could be, uh, what, what additional powers the Parliament needs in order to uh, fulfil its function, in order to serve the people of Scotland best. So, yeah, the time of the referendum is over. And my concern about the SNP at the moment is, I mean, we're obviously, as a party, doing this independence-first strategy. And I think it's, it's not an independence strategy, it's a general election strategy. It's aimed at trying to get 45% of the vote and save seats. But my concern is that the 45 is no longer the 45. There was a, there was a poll a few months ago which asked the constitutional question in a more nuanced way, and it had independence at 35% more powers or more autonomy for the parliament at 21%, things staying the same at 14%, and reduced powers, reduced autonomy for the parliament, 21%. So uh, a, a general election strategy that aims for independence in the 45 might end up delivering just 35%. So I think the ground, the, the fertile ground in Scotland at the moment is this 21% of people who want more powers. And it's a ground that neither the SNP or Labour are stepping into but I think there's a electoral advantage for the SNP to argue for independence and more independence, as we've done throughout large parts of our history, and for Labour to be the party of devolution and the party of uh, you know, improving devolution. Um, but nobody seems to be entering into that debate, into that territory, and I think that's where the, the votes and the potential are. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Hollywood Sources is proud to be brought to you by the Scotch Whiskey Association's Made to Be Measured campaign To become Scotch Whiskey, distilled spirit is carefully crafted before maturing in Scotland for at least three years, although it's often decades. That's why Scotch Whiskey should always be sipped savoured and enjoyed responsibly the chief medical officer recommends that adults who choose to drink alcohol consume no more than 14 units per week. But Scottish government research shows that two-thirds of Scots are not aware of those guidelines. The Made to be Measured campaign seeks to build greater awareness of the responsible consumption guidelines and the units of alcohol contained in popular drinks. Scotch whisky, it's made to be measured. Find out more at scotch-whisky.org.uk forward slash made to be measured.
Uh, Jeff, do you want to come in on on some of what we're talking about here? Particularly, I suppose, really, it's, it's quite interesting, isn't it, to consider the ways forward that we're discussing. Uh, that 21% that Stephen highlights of people who want more powers, who are perhaps not really being spoken to at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating discussion uh, so far. And if I may, I just want to pick up on a, on a couple of points and then pose a bit of a, a question to, to both Stephen and, and, and Joanne. Um, my, my reflection though, is, you know, there was 85% that turned out. It was mass participation. And and fundamentally, that is a good thing in a democracy. That's not to um, in any way minimise what Joanne was saying about her experiences, which I agree with Stephen, are, are, are extremely troubling. And listen, I, I've i had my own uh, run-ins. I remember the week after the referendum at a wedding in Forest, I was uh, accosted by uh, a gentleman that was so angry uh, that uh, we even had the temerity to raise the, the independence referendum and, and, and fight for independence in, in, that, in that contest. And so that, there is always those stories. But fundamentally, I thought it showed that we could hold a civic contest and uh, do so uh, literally in the eyes of the world and did it and carried it pretty well on the whole. And in comparison, if we look at general election turnouts recently, 71% in 2015, which was still very interesting, 68% in 2019, and the Scottish election in 2021 was 64%. So that 85%, I don't know if it'll ever be um, matched again. So I think that was a good thing. But where I do agree with Joanne is... Um, the coalition around the constitution just now in terms of our party politics. And if I was to be critical of my former employers, particularly interested in Stephen's views on this, is just on the tone, and there's a point about substance as well, but on the tone, this making the Tories, the bogeymen, and really hammering that. And I thought one of the things that really disappointed me about what Nicola Sturgeon said once was that I detest the Tories. She did qualify her remarks. That really frustrated me. My my mother's side and my auntie was a, a stood to be a Tory councillor, and we used to have great debates in the run up to the referendum and since on Scotland's constitutional future. And I hated the idea that I somehow must detest them or dislike them because they want Scotland to be in the union. Clearly, if we want to have um, another referendum and and make and, and 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 present a positive vision, we've got to cut this out of our politics. Just because somebody is a Tory does not make them a bad person. Uh, we're all Jock Tamsin's bairns, uh, to coin a familiar phrase. And that's frustrated me uh, in terms of our discourse around this issue recently. But on substance, one thing that I cannot understand, and I've raised it on this podcast before, is I believe fundamentally uh, the yes proposition lost because we did not convince enough people of the economic viability of an independent Scotland. Now, I would argue, apart from the Growth Commission from uh, Andrew Wilson, a former MSP, um, which sought to try and advance some of these issues, not a jot has been done uh, on in that space to convince people of the economic viability of an independent Scotland, particularly post-Brexit. And yet we're finding ourselves going into a general election, as you rightly say, Stephen, uh, not an independent strategy, a general election party political strategy. And I think... We're all going to be the poorer for that, regardless of the result of that general election, because there has not been a sophisticated or substantial development of the case for independence since. And we can cut this in the noise. I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm proving myself very unpopular uh, to many independent supporters just now uh, if they're hearing this. Um, but I think it's quite pathetic. 
Uh, and I think it needs to be a huge focus if we are serious about advancing the constitutional debate and to try and answer the questions that Joanna's raised so far in this podcast, then we need to develop the case. And it hasn't been done. And I think that's hugely disappointing. Stephen, first, go on. What do you, what do you make of what Jeff said, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we had to, in the referendum, we had can, should and must uh, so you, we, we can be independent, which is the, the, the economic campaign. And if you can persuade people that we can be independent, it's then a fairly easy ar- argument to persuade them that we should be independent. Um, and I think we, we did fail to lay the foundation of the can um, at the time. And things have changed. I mean, there's been a substantial change in the reality of where Scotland stands because of Brexit. Um but taking a step back, I think I think the independence strategy is one that we have known for fifty plus years. So Professor Neil McCormick, a great figure in the you know intellectual and the nationalist movement, in the early seventies set out a strategy which was get a Scottish Parliament, uh, add to the institutional capacity of that Parliament, so grow the powers step by step, and as you take each step, you review whether the powers are working, and you review whether you need to take an additional step. Uh, so you, as we have done, we've got a parliament, we've added on some tax powers, we've added on some social security powers. Um, and it is now the time, I think, to stop at this point and say, OK, these are the powers we have. Do we need additional powers in order for us to actually achieve more for the people of Scotland? And if we get those powers, we, we, we're one step closer to independence, yes, but there's no guarantee that we're on a, a, a motorway to independence because at each stage we review... Uh, the powers we have, the relationship we have with the rest of the UK and decide what the most appropriate next step is, if, if, if any. Uh, so for me, the, this, the independent strategy is one of building capacity, making a case based upon policy and need, uh, but also recognising the reality that in an interdependent world, we're always going to have a relationship with the UK. So there's always going to be a degree of union or mm. partnership alongside independence and if people are upset about that we have the European Union Uh, so if you can be independent in the European Union why can't you be independent in some way within a British Union of some form Mm. however that looks so for me the the strategy for the independence movement is policy focused step by step um, building capacity so it's nation building more than just campaigning. And I think we've spent too long, perhaps due to the referendum, being in this space of just campaigning rather than nation building. Um, and I hope that moving forward... So we, we, so part of this is the, the political parties will be political parties and they have to fight elections and they have to have their political battles. But if we want Scotland to progress, I think we have to have those out with politics also now being willing to engage in this debate. So we've had forums in the past in Scotland, the Constitutional Convention and things like that, where a cross-section of Scotland was able to say, OK, what do we want for our country? And I think the time is right now for something similar, uh, some sort of forum where people uh, who want to retain the union and people who want to have independence can sit down and talk about, well, what's the best next step? Mm. Andy, let's bring you in next. I'm just aware that you probably have some thoughts on what you're listening to. Oh, a couple. Um, look, <laughs> I have a different perspective than I think everybody else because um, I wasn't involved in any of the... As Jeremy Corbyn would say, I was present but not involved. Um, 
Uh, and, Very good. You know, I was a, I, you know, I was doing the job that I do now. I was a, a lobbyist and a commentator, and I have a totally different view of uh, what the campaigns were and what they represented. Um, I'm not a constitutionalised person. I don't care that much what's on my passport. It's never bothered me. I'm, I identify uh, myself by my surroundings and my community and my family and stuff. And I, so I'm not, uh, I'm not a sort of uh, dyed-in-the-wool emotional unionist. Um, I, it was not a joyous campaign for me, nor was it a bitter one. I just thought it was a dismal campaign. I thought it was an embarrassing campaign, actually. Um, I think the nationalist offer was totally unrealistic. Uh, I think they were effectively saying, uh, just vote yes and everything will be fine, even though we're not really telling you how. I thought it was actually uh, quite an un-Scottish campaign because I thought it was a betrayal of our heritage as a global intellectual powerhouse. I don't think we were anything close to approaching that uh, at all. Um, and I think it was completely unrealistic to expect uh, any more people than already did to vote yes on that prospectus. It just, it wasn't there. And, you know, the campaign for me was more about uh, saying what needed to be said to get left-wing Labour voters on board, uh, which for me goes hand in hand with economic unreality. And then on the other side, you had a really belligerent and in many ways quite offensive unionist campaign, I think. And I would separate out the Better Together campaign from what was coming out of Downing Street. I actually thought Better Together and Blair McDougall did a pretty good job uh, with what they had been given because they were given pretty thin gruel by Downing Street, to be honest with you. Uh, the Tory Downing Street approach, uh, as it still is now and as it always has been before, is give as few crumbs as you possibly can to a group of people who actually don't want the whole cake but would quite like a slice of it. That's been the approach for Downing Street. It's always been the approach for the Tory party and it always will be the approach for the Tory party. And I think a lot of the qualities which we as Scots really dislike um, about, uh, even unionist Scots really dislike about London, were on show in that campaign. So, you know, I, I'm, I don't have any good memories of the way the campaigns were run. There was no, there was no joy for me in that whatsoever. I thought it was, I thought it was internationally embarrassing. And just because 85% or whoever, whatever number of the people vote yes, that doesn't automatically translate into it being some sort of joyous, great expression. It wasn't. It hasn't done Scotland any good whatsoever. <laughs> Jeff, I, what I would can, say, I, can though, we can we bring in Jeff in an effort can, to move on? I think can, can can Jeff just respond to that only because he's making the same face that those of you who watch the Hamza Yusuf episode will be familiar with of sort of a bit exasperated. Go on, Jeff. Uh, I think Stephen's probably better. I'm I'm very tired, young baby, all the rest of it, and pretty grouchy these days. But Andrew's speaking nonsense. Uh, tell me what a a great campaign looks like in this regard. The stakes were very high. Uh, we engaged. Uh, almost the entire electorate. Um, internationally, I just urge you to look at YouTube to look at how internationally the debate was regarded. You've seen many commentators talk about it. So you might disagree with the fundamentals of the campaign. Fine, that's all right. But to say we're an international embarrassment is pretty stupid from my perspective. It's the first time I've ever called you something you've said stupid. I'm not saying the yes, cam not saying the yes campaign true. was an international embarrassment. No, no, hold on. You, on. you said no. it was a abysmal, yeah, abysmal no, I, campaign. I, I said the whole... I, I, all campaigns, both campaigns and what's come since. 
I don't think it's... I mean, you can't honestly say that this whole episode in the last 10 or 12 years has portrayed Scotland in a good light. No, no, you were talking about the campaign. You were talking about the referendum campaign itself. You did, you started it. It wasn't abysmal, it wasn't internationally embarrassing. Okay, 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 go on. Look at our international... Nonsense. Look at our international intellectual heritage and what this country has offered the world. You can't honestly tell me that the prospectus for an independent Scotland is kind of in that remit. Come on. I mean, it wasn't. Wait, you said so yourself. I mean, you know, the, the economic case wasn't made. You can't possibly expect that people would look at what was offered by Yes Scotland and say, you know, that is that is an absolute vision for what's going to come. It wasn't. I said earlier on, you could disagree with the fundamentals, absolutely. And, and there's elements, I think, with Stephen's covering them quite well, regrets that we had in terms of the strategy that we adopted at times. But to say it was internationally embarrassing and abysmal, I just... Don't that doesn't ring true? Well, I, 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 as I say, I don't. I don't separate out the yes side in that. I think. I think the whole thing was. I don't. I, I just, as an outsider looking in, I just don't. Uh, I don't regard the 2014 referendum on either side. This is not a criticism of yes. It's a criticism of both. Um, I don't regard it as being. But I, what I would say though, and this is important because I was just about to move on to yeah. that, uh, and uh, I'm still going to say it about Jeff even despite what he just said about me. Um, I I think don't underestimate how difficult it is for Stephen and Jeff. And I do regard those two people, Stephen and Jeff, as being the two leading lights of trying to encourage a different type of conversation about this. Now, I think those two are the two leading people in that side of the argument about discussing this. Don't underestimate how difficult it is for people like Stephen and Jeff to say, we need to look at something else now. It'd be incredibly easy for Stephen and Jeff just to get in line behind the whole, right, let's get independence now, you know, we're going to do this, that, and the other thing. Um, and they don't. They're thinking much more deeply about it. That's hard for them to do. Uh, and we shouldn't negate that because what we have now is the start of a really thoughtful exercise about saying, okay, we have to do this differently. Yes, we believe in independence, but there are other people who don't. Um, and we have to take an approach which perhaps moves us in the direction that we want to go in, but brings a lot of other people with us. And we have to consider you know, where in the spectrum we can find it acceptable to land. That's not easy for somebody on the yes side to do. And it really is to the great credit, I think, of Stephen and Jeff and the others who've started to say similar things that they are putting themselves out there and saying that. Because there's not a lot of people saying that on the unionist side. In fact, there's hardly any. Joanne, it strikes me that what Andy's saying there is is worth considering, isn't it? Is, you know, in... in on this podcast, we have we have kind of considered the difficulties of the campaign as it was around independence all those years ago, but we have to we have to consider where we're at now, and we have to be positive and optimistic for Scotland. That is the whole point of, and I think agreement consensus among you guys on this podcast, Scottish politics at large. So, where are the unionist parties when it comes to considering? how Scotland should be treated, viewed, what it should do in 2023. Are they presenting a, a positive, uplifting, it has to be uplifting, vision for Scotland that, that meets the expectations and demands of people now? Well, I mean, I think even in the framing of that, you, I guess, leave me behind a wee bit. I mean, I can only speak for what I think the Labour Party should do. I think the argument and discussion now in Scotland 
What was it that the referendum was reaching? What was it? Why was it interest? Why do people want to be engaged with it? Because they want things to be better for their families. They want their elderly parents to to be safer in their old age. They want their children to have the best opportunities. And my argument is that is not the constitution doesn't solve that. The constitution might be the means by which it becomes easier, but you still have to have the argument about how you fund public services. How do we challenge? inequality and poverty. And I think one of the things, looking back on the referendum that I reflect, the notion that simply changing the constitution changed people's lives is just a nonsense. Um, but it is where power lies, how you use power, how you understand what, what causes inequality in the first place. And nothing ever changed in this world simply by changing, you know, I don't know, where, I mean, it, my my frustration is that my belief that the focus of people in Scotland and focus of politics beyond Scotland is really not that different, which is how do you use the powers you've got? How do you use the economy, not just to have a strong economy, but shared prosperity and, and, and those issues that are related to it? So it might sound as if I'm skirting around the constitutional argument. My argument is politics is deeper than constitu constitutional arrangements follow from what you believe um, in terms of what your commitments are around, you know, how people's lives should be led. So mm. something, some powers should remain at Westminster, defence, security, whatever. But think, some things must be much more local. I'm going to tell you, Callum, the experience of people living in the, in the Western Isles, the Inner Hebrides, can be very different from somebody living in inner city Glasgow. And the uh, housing solutions the economic regeneration solutions will be different in these communities. And a lot of the things that were done in the past have been stripped out in the name of having the constitutional argument. In some ways, the only debate that changed, I reflected in the Parliament, that the only thing that changed post-referendum was the tense of the verb that people used. They went from, you should vote for independence, to you should have voted for independence. And actually, you know, everybody here, I think, gets and believes they want a better Scotland. But actually, that doesn't come... You know, you can bring all the powers you want to Scottish Parliament if you don't have people there and within our communities committed to using those powers directed towards some of our most vulnerable families and communities, then you won't change anything. Yeah. And I'm sorry, forgive me if this sounds like a parallel conversation to the conversation you want to have. No, no, not at all. But fundamentally, when you might have been into the last 20 years sitting in the Scottish Parliament with the frustration that thinking, that saying it meant it. Yeah. That saying that we have greater equality meant that we have it. That's not the way things work. I think actually, the, law of, un the law of unintended consequences has never been addressed yeah. because part of the problem with the referendum was the implication that people in the rest of the United Kingdom, Kingdom are so completely different from us that we have to be separate from them. And not only that, they want to steal the eyes out of our heads. But because okay. everything is about how much power to share, you have people who are able to carry in their head the same two things at the same time that we can't possibly be part of the United Kingdom, mm. but that we must be part of the European Union. Because we do believe we recognise that some powers need to be shared. I think it's those inconsistencies we need to address and fundamental, forgive me for going on. I don't think anything happens just because you say so. You actually have to do the heavy lifting of transferring from we see this problem, a child's denied opportunity. Mm. What do we need to do 
to address that. And in the referendum campaign, we got an argument which said, we believe in making children's lives better, so vote for this constitutional solution. That's not the way it works. Yeah. I, I have to say, in the interest, and Stephen will come to you just now, but I, th- you know, just as an observation, listening to the discussion here and matching it with what we've discussed a lot on the podcast, that if I may try to sort of pinpoint some terrifying outbreak of consensus, is that actually both sides of the argument at this point are calling out for good governance. And that's the thing that makes the case either way. Um, Stephen, is that, am I being overly simplistic on that? But it's something Jeff's talked about, something Joanne's talking about. It's actually doing things in the interests of Scotland works for either uh, an independent supporter or a supporter of the union. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that's, that's a, a good reflection. I, I would take us one step further back. So um, my research at the moment is looking at the, the early years of the Scottish Parliament, the, the, the creation of the Parliament. Uh, and what struck me was that one of the great motivations for the creation of a parliament was that we would seek to do politics differently. So there was a sense that the Westminster system uh, concentrated the power in Westminster. It was very hierarchical, centralising, and the Scottish Parliament was set up to be different. So it was meant to be a parliament that didn't sit above the people, but that was nestled within Scotland and connected and encouraging participation and new politics and all this sort of stuff. Um, And obviously it hasn't happened. We haven't delivered on that as as perhaps we would hope. But I think that the the good crown for us to be in at the moment is exactly this question of where where lies the power and how how is the power being uh, used. And I think Joanne is completely correct in saying that we need to be looking at how power uh, is distributed within Scotland. So genuine local empowerment, uh, genuine really looking at powers for local government. Um, And so moving away from Hollywood being a mini Westminster, which is this hierarchical centralising parliament, and actually moving to what was something more like what we had at the beginning, or the the ambition at the beginning, was for uh, the parliament, as I said, to be nestled within the country uh, in a different way. So there's a way of doing politics, and I think that way of doing politics, which is more... Um, participative, uh, it's more open, it listens to people, uh, it's what then begins to help deliver good policies. You're not having policy taken forward simply because the government's a majority of votes in Parliament and can get its, get its legislation through, but because it's gone through a process of genuine engagement, genuinely constructive policy building, responding to the needs of people in real situations uh, on the ground. Um, so for me, that's the big step forward. And it's a step forward that applies not just to policy in general, but also applies to how we do the constitutional debate. Mm. Uh, and for me, they're, they, they're separate, but they're also deeply enmeshed with each other. But can I just say that those aspirations in the early days, I mean, I made the point earlier, I regard Scotland's been far more centralised now than it was the establishment of the parliament. I think the the yeah. control over third sector organisations because of financial connection, the control over local government is greater now than it was before. And that's not accidental. It's because of the constitutional argument. It's because of a feeling that in order to make the case that you can't possibly have anybody digging away at your heels and you can't have people saying things that are uncomfortable. And we know that there was a centralised, a desire to have 
and a need for Scotland to speak in, in, with one voice. And I think that has been deeply detrimental. I completely agree with you that my commitment to the Scottish Parliament came later than most, but it was about seeing what happens when at Westminster they can entirely disregard what people are saying within local communities because they never need to look them in the eyes or live with the consequence of that. So I am profoundly into decentralisation, cooperative politics. And actually, I think now the Scottish Parliament sits atop that. And that's where the mindset has to change across the political parties and not to be constrained by this constitutional argument that we need to be really serious about that. And actually, some of the greatest failings over the very, you mean, over very highly political issues that mm. the Parliament is engaging with at a UK level at this moment around women's rights and so on has been demonstrated some of the worst kind of politics, which has been to close things down, to demonise people who disagree with you, to prevent the kind of scrutiny that actually the Parliament was established to set up. And it's a deep irony to me that I would look, and I think it's now breaking down a bit, but partly because of the travails of the SNP, that the, you know, the idea that backbenchers would criticise the frontbenchers and so on, it, there has been a loosening about that, and I, and I do welcome that, that you would look to say, well, where are the rebels? Where are the people, the voices speaking out against the executive? And that's where, you know, where I, I do think we are changing, and I recognise you have, have spoken about that, that when you, you get into the nuts and bolts, bolts of um, how do you change people's lives, then you do have to listen to people who know more than any politician does. And that is refreshing, I think, the institutions inside the Scottish Parliament. And I think it's about liberating local authorities. When I was a young woman, when people talked about local government, I knew local councils, Labour councillors, deeply troubled during the Thatcher period. They saw themselves as a dented shield against what the Tory government was doing and how could they do the best things they could do to protect people Within the, yes, they wanted a Labour government, but within the circumstances within, what could they do? And instead of that dented shield approach, I think too much of what we've had in the last period was, well, we can't do anything because Westminster is are, are monstrous and Westminster and a lot of things they've done. Mm. Clearly monstrous. But that creativity of using the power that you've got to protect people, I think, has not been properly nurtured because this parallel argument about how do we make the case for the constitutional debate um, has, has over, um, overshadowed everything else. Joanne and Stephen, thank you both very much indeed. It's really, really fascinating to spend time hearing your own thoughts on where things have been and where things are at. So thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Email us anytime. The inbox is always open. And the email address is hello at hollyroodsources.com. Great to have Joanne and Stephen on. I mean, Andy, let's just consider what we've been discussing over the last little while on the podcast then. And I suppose I am am quite keen at this point. Yes, we're doing this by way of reflection of, of 2014 and the campaign that led up to the referendum, but also to consider where we are at today. Because as we say, this question still hangs in the air. And I'm just I'm just trying to get to grips with how both sides are dealing with that. Yeah, happy referendum anniversary, everybody. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, uh, yeah, my so my immediate reflection from that conversation is it reminds me um, of when I first started dating my wife, and you always remember when you have your first argument, 
when you start <laughs> dating your partner. And Jeff and I have just had our first lover's tiff on air on Quite Hollywood Sources. We've had Quite our first big argument and Jeff's very, very upset about it, but I'm going to be the one who moves on and tries to just get us past this and kind of lets it go a little bit. Well, you, um, join, us in, look, you join us in the counselling session that's followed immediately exactly. after. That's what I know, this is. You're right in this. You're, you are literally <laughs> and figuratively in the centre of it as well, Callum. We need you at this point to bring well, us thanks. back together. Um, I think, you know what was interesting? Um, so... Uh, Joanne Lamont is well-known, well-liked and well-regarded across the political spectrum. And she's known for being very thoughtful. She was when she was Labour leader. It got her into trouble sometimes. Um, uh, But she's known for that. But you can tell that the emotion of somebody who was living through that campaign and so heavily involved in that campaign, it's still raw. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. nine years, but the scars are there. And for... Reasons that are not always totally clear, given that they won, that scarring feels more raw in the unionist community than it does in the nationalist community, I think. Um, it's probably a, a deeper conversation to go into why, but it feels like that scarring is more raw. Uh, and I, I, I mean, as I said uh, during our discussion there, I, I look at it differently because I was not so heavily involved in it. I was doing, a, you know, I was really an observer uh, more than a protagonist in it Um, I think the difficulty though is that we can't just set it to one side I would love if we could move on and talk about the real things that you know we are not doing well as a country we're not and it's not you know it's not anything against Scotland to say that we're not doing well our education system isn't doing well our health service isn't doing well our transport infrastructure our digital infrastructure there are really big problems that we've got to address and we're not really anywhere in addressing them. And I, I, the, the, the problem is, I think, we need to answer this constitutional question properly one way or another before we can really move on and address them. And that's really why I was paying tribute to um, Stephen and Jeff during that discussion there, because I think that, um, I'm sure Jeff won't mind me saying, that Stephen in particular has gone out there and really created an option He's given his own side a ladder to climb down. There's not going to be a referendum, right? This is ridiculous. There is really no visible way. I mean, you can't possibly put together a cogent argument for how there's a referendum round the corner. It's just not. And I think that Stephen has recognised that and he's put together an option. He's put together, as I say, a ladder for his side to climb down, which might, if Labour can also get on board, and it will be Labour which might actually give us a kind of middle ground constitutional solution that most people in this this country have actually wanted all along. If we can get that, we might then be able to move on. But I think what this discussion shows between people who are seen to be very much on the reasonable, moderate side of their arguments, I think what the discussion shows is we've still got a bit of a distance to travel to get there. Yeah, I, I thought Joanne's contribution was very good. Um, uh, and you're right, Andy. He, she does bear some of the emotional scars from it, and that's quite clear to tell. Um, the the constitutional argument isn't going away by virtue of the fact that, despite the fact the SNP's vote is going down the way, um, or trending that way, we should say, there's been another poll recently that suggests it might be upticking again, 
support for independence has remained pretty solid uh, in and around 46, 47, 48%. And so it isn't going away for the party political reason that the SNP are going to try and extract as many of those votes as possible. But one of the reasons I suspect that Joanne and other Labour politicians feel the burden so much is because they have been the the biggest electoral victims of the referendum um, and they're very conscious of that as the 2015 general election uh, kind of made clear. But they've also got it in their gift to try and help not solve the constitutional question but provide that uh, alternative offer. And I do wonder, you know, and I'm going to go back to this phrase that was used many years ago of fiscal autonomy, full fiscal autonomy. And uh, I think Stephen was getting there. If Labour turned around and said, right, OK, uh, clearly it's not going away, this argument. Uh, perhaps there's suggestions in the polls, which we'll see what happens in Rother Glen and, 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 and uh, thereafter, that uh, the Labour votes reached a ceiling. How do they get beyond that? Perhaps they just say, look, there you are, Scotland. There's full financial autonomy. The decisions you take, the choices you make, uh, have to be paid for. Um, now, the reverse of that is, I don't, this is not going to happen, incidentally, because I believe that mm. fundamentally, and this is the point about Andy and Westminster comes in very relevantly, is that, that they all think, oh, God, what if they make a success of that? <laughs> um, and, uh, and we'll see what happens. You know, maybe that's perhaps far too simplistic, but... But, you know, mm. at some point, whether it's a referendum or not, and I agree that one isn't particularly likely right now, uh, there has to be some sort of um, removal of this blockage. And I believe a, a considered package of powers to the Parliament say, right, on you go, show us what you can do and let us know it's all worthwhile. And perhaps that's the, the way forward. I just don't see that happening either. So they mm. were stuck in a bit of a stalemate. Yeah, it is interesting that stalemate, isn't it? Nine years on, and and uh, you know the the passion on both sides remains. It, it was you know it was such a time. I said this um, uh, to Blair Jenkins, I think, this week that I was a student at the time, and you could not get through five minutes without people discussing politics. And it, you know, as a politics nerd, it was that was brilliant just to have ongoing conversations around the referendum and and what it meant. And that I just want that passion to be replicated all over again, just in politics in general, I suppose. And honestly, I meant what I said in, in, in the discussion, that it, Scotland was alive. It was mm. alive. And I think I've mentioned to you before that I was on my way to football training at Peffer Mill in Edinburgh, and I got on uh, the, the bridges, um, the, the number 14 Green Dykes bus, and <laughs> these two elderly ladies were... <laughs> We're talking about lender of last resort, and I was just kind of earing in this conversation. Like, <laughs> what have we done here? You know, so <laughs> yeah. Scotland was alive with debate. There was negatives to that. I think you know, I, I'm troubled to hear about Scotland's Absolutely, experience. I had similar experiences from other sides as well. And I mentioned my dismay at this characterisation of the Tories. I mean, separate that between there's people that vote for the Tories, and those people yeah. will be if Scotland is independent, residents of Scotland, and more than welcome. And that's the point. Um, uh, but uh, I uh, I don't know, Callum, uh, in any short order if we're going to revisit such mm. a debate because there is that blockage. Um, and I just don't know clearly what, what the answer is. And, and, and Andy's also right. Stephen has put himself out there. I've done some somewhat of that. Uh, but, but Stephen's particularly coalescing around a third option. And it'll be interesting to see if that gains traction in the coming years. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, right, Jeff and Andy, thank you both very much. Uh, great to have you on.
I, f- I feel like we're all made up that we'll all be here next week having a good com- conversation on the podcast I'm We've over got, it got I'm over it I'm fine I'm, I'm, I'm ready to move on I'm ready to take our relationship to the next level we're all good oh gosh yeah, I'm going to take some time to reflect <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you both typical nationalist he just never let us go (laughs) right stop stop somebody press mute Uh, thank you both very much and by the way we are gathering some of you have sent in questions already we're gathering your questions so we can do a sort of Q&A with Jeff and Andy so if you've got anything you want to ask perhaps in light of what you've just been listening to as well uh, then feel free you can always email your thoughts we love to have your emails as part of the podcast Uh, so just send them in to hello at hollywoodsources.com we'll gather up some questions we'll do a QA and a very very soon uh, so send yours in hello at hollywoodsources.com thank you very much for listening if you've not heard the Blairs over the last couple of days you can scroll back in your feed and have a listen to those and us three will be back again uh, very very soon so make sure you join us then thank you Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.